0: so much for joining us today um, we are here from artists and residents in Everglades invited very generously by Untitled Art Fair to speak to you about our program we've got a few of our artist fellows here along with uh, the untitled guest curator of this year Jordan Stein uh, we're gonna share just a little bit about Artists in Residence in Everglades, Airy, an amazing nonprofit program that puts artists of multiple disciplines out in the Everglades for a month at a time to live, to work, and to create out there. Uh, my name's Sarah Michelle Rupert. I'm the executive director, and I'm here joined with Onajid Shabaka on my left, Donna Levy, Jordan Stein, Harumi Abe, and Christina Peterson, uh, they'll introduce themselves, and we'll have a really great chat. I think we'll do Q&A afterwards, and we invite everybody back to the airy booth, A39, to join us for a champagne reception following the chat.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Thanks for those who are listening and who are not here. We'll find this later online. My name is Jordan. I work as a guest curator here at Untitled this year, and although I'm not based in South Florida, I've spent a lot of time in the Everglades, very enchanted region, beautiful and unforgiving in equal measure. And when I learned that there was a residency program that was based in the National Park, of course I couldn't believe it, and I had to see it for myself. I had a great afternoon with Sarah and Valerie here, and we checked out the residency studio location, which is actually inside the National Park. So it's it's an absolutely singular program And as far as I'm concerned, when artists are given the chance to have time and space to make their work anywhere, let alone a location that is so far off center, the possibilities are truly limitless. And I was very inspired that day. So I'm honored to be here and participate in airy goings on in any capacity, uh, let alone with four very fine artists who have joined us for the day. And I thought we could begin by hearing directly from these artists one at a time briefly, introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about who they are and the kind of work that they're making. And then we'll jump right into their lives and works in the Everglades and how that, that engagement was impactful in their practice and their lives. And maybe we can start, Christina, with you. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot, but. But Get it over with. <laughs> yeah. What what sort of work do you do, and and how did you first hear about this this program?
2: Well, I grew up here, so I was always connected to the Everglades. So I actually applied years before, but it wasn't until Airy became Airy really that they, the residency program, really upped the ante about a million percent um, to what it is now. Uh, thanks to its fantastic directors. Um, so my work in my studio is mostly drawing-based. Um, I do a lot of landscape, the sort of dark magic of the Everglades particular to it. Um, and then I also do um, a number of more community and um, public-based projects, such as the um, performance. I actually did the very first performance that ever occurred at the National Park for the centennial um, that was about this sort of dark history that led to its um, being protected. So things like that. <laughs>
1: Amazing. Thank you. Harumi.
3: Okay. Hi. Uh, I'm a painter, and uh, right now my current series of work is called Shake, and it's uh, based on the Japanese garden design that's uh, incorporating background landscape and the actual garden. So it's like a layered land, uh Garden design, and I'm using that idea and combining the uh, landscape that I visit in Everglades and South Florida local parks. And image of, I'm from Japan, and image of my uh, Japanese garden that I grew up with and my hometown, and also the memory and imagination. So, that that kind of imaginary landscape painting is what I've been doing. I'm a resident. I'm a, uh, I was a uh, I was in the residency in 2013, and I got to know about Aerie because one of my former profess uh, my my professor went there. I think 2000 or something longer time ago. Um, yeah, so that's when that's how I got to know. Yes. Done. Um, I'm a,
4: I work mostly with video installation and photography, I'm based in New York. Um, a lot of my work is about the relationship between man and nature, between the structured world and the wild one, and um, archives, histories. I learned about it through um, Tommy katz Freiman, an amazing curator, that recommended that I apply, and um, that's it. <laughs>
5: Hello, my name is G-Day Shabaka. I was a resident in September of 2015. Uh, My art practice mostly comes from walking so I'm very interested in uh, botanicals and so the Everglades is a perfect place to do walking and there's lots of different plants. But also I'm thinking about plants in terms of uh, identifying historical paths as well.
1: And whereas you all have practices, it's fair to say that none of you had actually made work in a national park or maybe even in, lo- in a location so remote. I was really struck the first time I went there that it really was in the center of the park and there's a great screened-in porch and it was filled with just an unbelievable constellation of insects They were ready to say hello to you. So I, I wanna know, you know what it was like when you first Touch down in such an environment. That's obviously, um, you know, not not a traditional studio uh, setup. And maybe what sort of expectations you had when you first got there, and then how your time evolved.
5: Well, me personally, yeah. you know, I've been, I, you know, I met somebody, you know, 2000. I'm sorry, 1997, who lives in Minnesota. Uh, And it has a family cabin up in the Boundary Waters area. And, um, which also relates to the Everglades in terms of um, somebody there, Sigurd Olson, was the person that went in front of Congress to designate the wilderness as a designation for the National Park System. And he had a cabin real close to my friend's cabin. So, you know, I've been going there and it's isolated and, you know, so for me, just going to the Everglades was just another isolated wilderness. Got it. Got
2: it. And for me, the prices in Miami are so high, it was actually more space out there than I had in my Miami apartment. I was like, Other there's a bathtub? Listen. This is luxurious. <laughs> 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 but then once you get out into the actual Everglades, then, yeah, then it gets, it gets intense, for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, what was your first experience with that sort of intensity.
2: Well, I kind of grew up doing some of that. I had some like wild friends in high school, so we'd be like, "Let's go tromp into an alligator hole." So, I had some familiarity with that. But but doing it entirely on my own was a much more intense experience. That sense of like, "Oh, if something happens, I could actually die, but that's part of what we all love about it is the (laughs) intensity of it. You know, it doesn't make it easy for you. You can't experience it by just driving through it. You can't even walk through it most Mm -hmm. of the time. I mean, you really have to, like, get inside and get dirty and muddy and full of mosquitoes and hate life a little to,
3: like, see how amazing it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How many did you need to get dirty and muddy?
3: Yeah, I definitely got dirty and muddy. but okay, so my experience was, I guess, similar in the way, but I did, didn't have that much experience in going to Everglades by myself either. I was, I had, my husband is a avid fisherman, so we'll go fishing with him to Chakaloski or Everglades area before, but it was my first time going there alone. And the first four days, I totally freaked out. And the first days, I decided to drive back to my home in Hollywood. And once I got home, I, actually, once I turned the corner of a robot is here, it's a fruit shop stand, I was like, oh, civilization. And start started feeling like a little bit more calm. And as I drive home, I was like, okay, what, I, what was I so scared of? So I stayed one day and I came back and... Then I start slowly, actually, experiencing the Everglades. And I'm sure everybody did, but slogging inside of the Cypress Dome.
1: Slogging? Yeah. Can you describe that process?
3: You just walk inside of the water with the shoes and everything on. Yeah, like up to here in the water and slowly slug your foot in so you don't fall down, I guess. I, I think that's why it's called slogging, right? Yeah. Yeah yeah so you walk in the mud to (laughs) explore it's actually incredibly
2: clear water Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. because of course it is a river of grass yeah
1: right and Donna how about you what was your introduction to the elements
4: Um, it was really very intense from the beginning so I'm totally a city dweller and I was very anxious about going there I I was watching all these videos about alligators invading your home (laughs) before I went I just remember like the first day or something, I drove um, tw- I, I drove right outside the park and then I saw a camel. And I was like, what's a camel doing here? And then I saw it was a, a rescue for all these animals. Some of them were like from, for entertainment. It was very bizarre. And I, they let me in, they showed me around. Um, and then inside that rescue, I saw a man who lived there. There was like this round structure So I was going to knock on the door, and they said, oh, he'll open the door, but he might not have his shirt on, if that's okay. I said, okay. So a a man opens the door, and in his house, he had 60 snakes um, in there. And he just took them out like a cobra snake. That was the first day I was there. He took out like a cobra snake and started showing me all these snakes. And I asked him, can I come back tomorrow and film you? And he said... Yeah, tomorrow I'm getting my venom injection, and you can come right after that. Wow. And, basically, and so that was like, and the camel was right outside, and it was just, that was the first day. And every day was at that level of intensity, yeah. Good
1: answers, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now we, can, we don't have to go in order. I just kind of want to hear from everybody about how, so after you make this initial contact, and you get... You meet the guy with the no shirt and he's getting the venom injection, <laughs> and you're slogging through. I mean, what, what did you start to do? How did you begin to think about your your process and your practice? Did you what did you start to make, you know, or at least think about making? Because there's no there's no great you know and terrible expectation that you that you finish work when you're there, which is a really terrific thing about being there, and that's one of the things that makes the program unique. Because what artists are in so, so, so des- desperate need of is just. Uh, just time to be artists. So hard to come by. So how did you structure the time and what sort of things did you start to think about and or make? And feel free to just jump in, you know. Everybody.
2: (laughs) Uh, For me, I mean, I was really not making any artwork when I was there. The point was, I think, to just get out as much as possible. And I think most of us have that experience. And one thing that Ari does that's so particular to the National Park Residencies is it makes a, a point or it makes it part of its structure to really connect you with everybody working in the park. So you get to experience, for me, a big part of it is not just the like experience of, of being out there full time on your own, which is the one half of it, you know, uh, the primal human part that I think inspires our work from the beginning. But that's the other part is that you're connecting with the water department and the invasive species department and the fire department, and you're realizing, at least for me for the first time, the national park isn't about leaving an environment alone actually. It's the, almost the opposite. There's so much fine-tuning happening. There's so many people working behind the scenes that it's like this structure that's almost some life support from the damage that we've done to it. And yet all these scientists and magicians are trying desperately and wonderfully and heroically to keep it alive. You know, and I think that was a huge influence for me. It was the idea of like what you what you see and the experience you have being in it is very different from what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah.
1: And how were some of those conversations with folks working at the park who have oh, very particular amazing! i
2: feel like every single person i meet working in a park like astounds me with what they're doing and what they've devoted themselves to from like the guy who spends you know 12 hours a day going out to check these remote water stations and it's like a year on his boat alone building these things and like, <laughs> and, like awesome. oh i spend all day in a field up to here in water like waiting for a snake to go by like
1: <laughs> and they didn't view it's, you or they didn't view any of the artists as uh, invasive species. You
2: know, in <laughs> no, they're they're mo- mostly extremely kind to us and generous. Yeah. So I think you yeah, know they've done a really good. Again, the leaders have done a really good job of uh, letting the park know and and yeah. and
4: having them be a part of what they're talking about. Um, so I started. I actually made so much work there. I made. I was only there for four weeks, and I made loads of work because I was extremely lucky to meet somebody called Steve Tennis, who's a hydrologist, and he just became my assistant basically. He, every idea I had, he's like, oh, we can do that, and I'm like, I want to put in furniture in the swamp, and oh, I can do that, Uh, I have a van, I have a friend with a van, I can catch some snakes for you, everything I wanted to do. He was up for it and um, so that was one video I made and then I I wanted to project onto the vegetation at night because it was just such a magical place and I wanted to to show that magic so I didn't know how so I was okay. So we had to roll out a, a generator on a wheelbarrow right into the middle of the... Everglades, And he was like, oh, yeah, I have a wheelbarrow. I have a generator. Everything I wanted to do, he helped me do it.
1: He didn't need to be doing that. I mean. No,
4: not at all. He And I didn't even, I just met him. Deborah introduced me to him. And he was a hydrologist. And he was just into art. He was like, yeah, let's do this. So I had, like, an assistant there. And, and he brought his own furniture that's in that photo there. It's like some... And, yeah, so, I don't know. And I just met people, like the snake guy, I also made a video about all these men that are living in the park, which I called um, Eden without Eve, because I felt like it was, it was me observing kind of the, these men alone in the park, what they're doing, in, it was very interesting. So I made like three different videos there.
1: I have, a, I have a question about that that I want to come back to, living okay. inside or outside the park, yeah. but I want to hear from other folks about. Okay. Kinds of oh, things were well, thinking about you there. know,
5: my, my family originally moved to, part of my family moved to Florida in the 1920s from South Carolina. So I was very interested in how, you know, I could take my experience in the Everglades and project it back in time. So I was uh, looking at the night sky because it's supposed to be dark, although it was rainy, and so you, know, you get a lot of uh, light overflow through the, the mist from the rain during when I was there. But I was looking about uh, the sky and thinking about how you know, some other generations of people long before anybody from Europe ever came here and you know how would they identify certain configuration of stars and then relate that to my family and so you know i was kind of trying to piece all that together but i'm still kind of working on the same thing
1: sounds like a big project
5: yeah and and that's the other thing too like she said you know the everglades is so complex and that was the one thing that i learned i mean i knew it was huge but just the complexity of all the various parts and all the people that have to work together—I mean, it's—it's it's mind-blowing. It really is.
1: Wow. And who did you encounter, folks, or work with people who were involved in the in the well, park? Well, Steve preserve?
5: Tennis, again. You know, he was a great. You know, we got on a boat and we went up some river on the other side of the coast and didn't see another human the whole day. <laughs> so that was great. So but just, you know, talking to the Rangers. And um, I guess the one thing that was an unbelievable experience, we were out we got a uh, state vehicle or federal vehicle and went, you know, just around looking in a park and we stopped on the side of the road. We were actually in Big Cypress at that moment and stopped on the side of the road and out of the swamp, uh, Panther comes and it ran in front of us about three meters, which is about 10 feet in front of us. And, you know, ran off into the, some more trees and you're like, we're all, like, wow, what happened? What was that?
1: For those of you who don't know, it's exceedingly rare.
5: And yeah, exactly. Ex- Very. Like rangers do them. Mm-hmm. Right. There are people that have worked in the park for 20 years that have never seen one. So that, and that was my last day there
1: So what do you do with an experience like that on your last day and then you and then you leave the park? I mean how does that linger in your imagination?
5: Well, I mean it's just to me it's just part of nature, you know, because if you're because I go out in these wilderness areas and if you're quiet, you know, you can see things, you know. I mean I you know, I go like I said up in Minnesota and I'm out in the middle of nowhere and You know, just that's just part of my experience. So for me, it was like a blessing. You know, it's like a blessing.
1: It's nice, yeah.
3: Yeah, the being quiet is definitely a thing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that there's a lots of birds in Everglades, and all the birds are used to loud car driving by. But as soon as you walk up, they freak out and they take off. So you have to really slow down and stand still and they'll come back to you. And you know, they're, they're like, okay, this person is okay. So yeah, but I didn't have the similar kind of experience as you guys when I was there. Um, I went there during the summer and it's the hardest time to get out. You have to wear the net to just go out of the house to the car because you get hit by 20 mosquitoes in one shot. So, and it was during the same time the ranger had a summer vacation so i I met him like maybe three days, so I was kind of left on my own device, but it actually gave me a great chance to read the, the residency have an awesome library. so I read a lot of book there, and I got to know so much about everglades itself and one thing I realized was like I live in Hollywood, Florida, it's not far away from here and that used to be an Everglades part of the Everglades Everglades is all south of Okishobi Lake so my backyard is kind of like Everglades so thinking about that connection itself was like really important for me because I was always making work about homesick in you know far away Japan and now it's more about being Japan and you know being here the whole new home so it was important for me in the
1: broader area so. yeah yeah, that's what I wanted to go back to, is folks who are in the park, or just outside the park, or what you came to learn about the designation of the national park, what that did to certain communities that were there, or folks who were kind of grandfathered into the system, or yeah. this kind of like social history mm-hmm. um, of folks who live in and around the park, you know, beyond the, the, the folks who were working at the park service, if you had interactions or impressions of, of that. And what it means to cross the street and be in a national park suddenly.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I, um, I was fascinated by this one road called Loop Road. It's 90 minutes away from where I was staying, but every single day, I was just drawn to go back to Loop Road. So the first part, there's like uh, Mukasuki Indians living, and they all like... Um, they all live off the casino <laughs> that's just outside. And there's like a whole uh, police system. I didn't know all this. But. And that, so they were there, and each house is a different color. It's like pink, green, blue, it's just like amazing. And I met, I made a friend that's from the tribe, and he is an artist as well. He, was, he works in the center there, and he carves these wood. And we're friends until now. Like, he just made me another little wooden structure and we still, like, that was five years ago. So we're totally so. so yesterday he sent me, like, something. So we're, we're still in touch. But he told me about how he has alligators coming to his doors. And and then I also met another couple that live there. And, like, they're, uh, they were telling me about how they shoot pythons every day. And then there's, like, a guy called Lucky there. And he takes photos of naked women in the park. And... <laughs> No, I mean, this is the landscape of people. And I thought, oh, he must be really sleazy. But then when I met him, he's like, oh, no. These are women that, that want to be documented in I nature. And my I wife know. and I help them pose. And some women, I filmed them. I've been shooting them from when they were 20 till now they're 70. I met Lucky. Yeah, so he actually turned out to be really nice. So those are the people, those are just the residents of Loop Road. <laughs> and it's in the middle of the park. And you see, like... With Steve, we caught three snakes on that road, just like putting them in the bag for something I wanted to film. So, an alligators come crossing the street. It's just insane. And those are the people that live there. Yeah. Anyone else? Well, I think that, um, I, I mean, I love learning about the
2: human history, too, and the interesting parts where you see the remnants of people who still live like that, and I think, you know, when you read about the history of the park, too, there was obviously a lot of animosity, between you know the park rangers and the people who were kicked out, that still very much exists today, and I think it's one of the things I know. So we've had this conversation of like just trying to bridge that gap between those two worlds because you're not going to be able to save the Everglades unless you can get the people who are living on the outskirts and still driving airboats to like care about what we're trying to do inside it, which is why you know programs like Area are so good. Um, But yeah, it's just a super weird world. Uh, You know, I mean, this was really... It was the last Wild West in the United States. It was, like, (laughs) the place where you could still go hide out. So it was full of criminals and um, outlaws and ex-slaves. And, you know, it has this really dark, fascinating history.
1: um, Sounds really complex, social, historical, economic, from just about every angle. How did you begin to think about making a performance in that park especially if nothing like that had ever been yeah. done before. um
2: and yeah and i hadn't done too much like that either but i uh, was fascinated by the the history of plume hunting which uh, was so awful that by 1900 like 90 percent of the wading birds were gone uh, which to me was like an astonishing number you are in the time period where it seems like it's just a gun you know a guy with a gun out in the swamp like how much damage could you do but they had just wiped out so much um, and that's, but that's what was the, you know, the call to the world to, to pay attention. But I felt like I didn't know that growing up here, you know, I didn't re- learn, really anything about this kind of history <laughs> until the last number of years, really, um, And it was just such an important thing to try to talk about. And it was just really fun to be able to go into the park. It was an adventure. You know, Deborah and I had to go and, like, talk to the director and say, listen, um, I'm going to bring in some vintage guns, and there's going to be some women murdering people. (laughs) And uh, we were like, this is never going to work. But, uh, yeah, it worked out beautifully. (laughs) It was an amazing day. (laughs) So it's very lucky to be able to do that. And they have been, like I said, the park employees are really great about working with us.
5: Well, I think for myself, you know, some of the history that previous history, you know, some things that I looked at after I returned home. But I, you know, again, I was thinking about, you know, the relationship with my family because my family had been in Florida longer than just about anybody else that I knew. Um, Because they were trying to build a railroad through the park, you know, there was um, some logging that was going on and, you know, pine tar production and, and just all kinds of strange things happening in the, in the park. So, you know, I mean, those were things that I looked at. But I think I looked at them more after I returned home than I did while I was there. There were a lot of books to read in the, in the residence space itself. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm still continuing to think about that. And, and I'm still working on the night sky kind of stuff, you know, in different places. I know I've been out of the country and thinking about what the night sky looked like in some country, you know, you know South America or something, you know, yeah. I mean, but I'm, I'm still thinking along those same lines.
1: Yeah, yeah. And other folks, how yeah, how is the, like with G-Day, how has the experience impacted you or how do you suppose it's still runs through your system in, in ways that may be conscious or not. Because you know, I haven't spent much time in the Everglades, but it's such a vivid, yeah. p- you know, place that it really it's it stuck in my in my imagination. So i I'm well, you know, I've
5: I've also been to some other parks like my Yaka River State Park. And so, you know, I go to places other than than just in the Everglades. But, you know, I was thinking about, you know, again, being alone in, in the wilderness area I remember over in my yaka, as a matter of fact, I, was, I wanted to go to an area, but you know, I went to the rangers and asked them about you know a particular location and let them know that I was going somewhere. So if, <laughs> so if I disappeared, they knew where to find the bones. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's what you have to do. You have to let people True, know where you're yeah. going.
4: Like life-changing, um, just this experience. Like I really felt like I was having a dialogue with the universe, like very intimately. Like even when I was filming the projections on the on the plants, so that was like really late at night, and then it started to drip water. So I said, okay, let's. Uh, I'm turning off the camera, and as just as I turn off the camera, we saw like a a moonbow, like a rainbow at night. And that was just like an exact reflection of what I'd been projecting. And I, it was just like this constant dialogue I was having with nature. And it was very intimate. And it just, even though everything was so, you're so alone, I felt very safe because of that dialogue. That was just like, it was a very powerful experience.
1: Totally beautiful.
2: Mm.
3: Yeah. I Yeah. I, uh, I think a lot about I guess it's, uh, while I was there, I think it was uh, Tammy. I think you curated a show at the bus one time, and there was like a catalog about Unnatural, and I read that catalog, so I was thinking a lot about uh, the idea of sublime, and how the vastness and those dark, dark, huge places, they're all scary. <laughs> and that idea of that is has definitely stayed in me, and even now, like if I walk my dog in my neighborhood, because I think of a Everglades is extension in my backyard, right? So I walk my dog, and I see like huge, jungly looking bushes. I think of that connection. So it's totally stays in my, in in me about in that fear way, I guess. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah. Well, speaking of existential, you know, <laughs> fearful crises, and before we we wrap up, I wonder if you guys. Would you be willing to talk about things that you learned or, or unlearned about conservation and, and th- threats to the region, threats to people, threats to species, things like that, that you either expected or, or, or got to know about when, when you were there and how that informs your life now?
4: Yeah, I mean, um, I was really fascinated by the uh, invasion of the Burmese pythons that was going on there, which from just like the pet industry you know how to Burmese pythons are like almost extinct in Burma, and here there's like and it, they're they're pests basically, and that was just crazy. So I, I the work here has like the um, biologist Skip Snow holding up um, the face of a, like a skull. I don't know how you, the skin and the head of a Burmese python. So. That was really interesting. And and just reading a lot about how, you know, they used to want to make it all into farmland, and then they realized that it was gonna affect the whole uh, biodiversity of the the whole region, and then they got smart, and it's actually so well-preserved. It's like something really, I heard it's like one of the most well-preserved places in the world uh, in terms of uh, national parks. So that was amazing, Um, yeah.
2: Well, I think it gives you the ability to be able to talk to people about what Florida really is, how ancient it is, what the regional landscape means. And sometimes that's really tricky because you sound like a lot of environmentalists. You know, it's very tragic. I mean, everyone's sitting on the beach here. I was thinking about Loomis Park, and I was thinking, oh, yeah, Mr. Loomis, who still gets a park named after him, who single-handedly ripped out every ancient saw palmetto along this beach to make polo grounds and golf courses. You know, it's awful. (laughs) But, you know, my number one thing is to just get people, like, just go to the park. Because no matter what tragic things you learn about it and how hopeless it feels, the second you're inside of it, it's completely magical. And the second you have that experience, it just makes all those things worthwhile and all those things worth fighting for. And we are particularly bad here at doing that. You know, it's so transient. It's so... Uh, touristy events like this and people have this like total separation so I'm like just go to the park it's right there <laughs> you know and being able to like having spent the month there you can, you can say like it's okay you're not going to die the gators won't kill you I swear I've been around i a ton they're not interested in eating you <laughs> you know like first hand knowledge is really important like yeah having an actual experience like, is the most important thing I think
3: Um, well, one thing I noticed is that uh, back in the time they used like a, uh, Brazilian pepper plants to dry up the swamp. And I think one of the rangers, somebody told me about that. So that plant is everywhere and all over the Broward, Dade, West Palm, everywhere. So I pay attention to finding those plants so much more now. And yeah, it's hard to get rid of. And I think they successfully get, there's an area inside of Everglades called Donut. That was like a last bit of a farmers who didn't leave and they kept. So there's like a donut circle area that, that needed to be cleaned up. I think that's ha- how it is. <laughs> Hole, in donuts. Hole in Donuts. Yes, <laughs> Hole in Donuts. That's the real name. Yeah, <laughs> and I think they finally took out all the piece of seed of Brazilian pepper. You really need to dig like I don't know how deep, but they it's, scraped the lime yeah, they really yeah they really need to like put dirt <laughs> upside down to take out all the seed to get rid of it. And yeah, it's amazing that they did that.
1: And maybe to wrap up, maybe you, you could all um, share a little bit about what you're thinking about and or working on these days, out, out of the park.
5: Just to go back momentarily to your question about the influence outside of the park. Yeah. You know, I, I studied with a professor of geology and you know, he had done a lot of, over on the west coast had done a lot of archeology span with um, looking at the shells fossil cells. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was kind of something that was in my mind again when I was there thinking about, you know, ancient times. Um, so I just wanted to add that in because yeah, yeah. It, was, it kind of reminded me of that. And also the other thing that I feel like was really important, I made a little short uh, movie about silence because compared to here in the urban environment you know you go to the everglades and you think that it's quiet but it's not really quiet you know there's the wind blowing through the trees and like you mentioned the various plants i mean uh, animals that are in different parts of the tree canopy and you know so there's a certain kind of communication that are between different animals that is really important you know that she mentioned as well I'm sorry, what was your other
4: question? That's
1: good. Uh, where, where can, Where can the folks here or listening uh, sort of find you now, and what are you thinking about or, or working on?
4: Um, I just came... Is this on? Uh, yeah. I just came from a two-month residency or fellowship in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm working on a show at the St. Louis Art Museum, and what's interesting there is the opposite is happening... Um, half the city is like totally, um, nature is taking it back. So it's been completely abandoned, neglected, and all these buildings, like, literally are being taken over by nature. So that was really interesting to see, you know, places that have, you know, because of racial issues and all kinds of things like that, um, there was... There's a lot of, like, that was white flight, a lot of things that caused this, but now half the city is being completely taken over by nature. So it was interesting to see the other side of, you know, man, man and nature, the relationship is really interesting. And yeah.
5: <laughs> well, I am currently working on the same kind of ideas about um, plants and seeds being transported by animals and humans as well and so that's been you know something i've been really focused on and but i'm really looking at rice now because that was a, a product of the slave era uh, and so that's what i'm kind of looking at but it's still about plants that have been transported around the world part of what they call the columbian exchange Got
3: it. i'm still continuing on the same idea of a uh Home, I mean, pay, uh, painting about Japan and ho- landscape here. Uh, I'm going to have a solo show in the end of May in the Coral Contemporary Gallery in Miami. So, trying to make a more painting related to what I've been thinking, so,
2: yeah. Uh, my next project I'm really excited about, I'm working with this woman here, <laughs> director of the Deering Estate. Um, uh, highlighting a very important archaeological site um, called Cutler Fossil Site which was a this is a large sinkhole where evidence of um, paleo-indian and also um, animals from the last ice age so woolly mammoths, direwolves, all kinds of crazy interesting stuff that again most people don't know about and establish Florida as an ancient place so I'm super excited about that.
1: When is that happening?
2: Uh, it's kind of f- unfolding over the course of the <laughs> next few years. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> but right. next year, Beautiful. technically. Some, uh,
1: scientific discovery, so yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay, terrific. Well, artists, thank you so much for being here and being a part of this amazing conversation. Christina, Harumi, G Jide. <clears throat> Huge thanks to Untitled for sponsoring this conversation today and for Sarah for having us. Thanks everybody.